I don't want to share someone else's thoughts. I want to create my own original thoughts. I want to create my own original solutions. I want to look at situations and come up with my own phrasing, my own words, and do it my way. This is the John Taffer Podcast. Shut it down. Hello, hello, everybody. I'm John Taffer. This is the John Taffer Podcast. Thank you all for listening. This will be the last podcast of our new year, Corey. That's right. Yeah. Last podcast of 2020. Man, am I glad to see this. I hope that we can get back to the fun that we had in, in uh, 1919 on this podcast and that every week is so serious all the time. Yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. So that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that, that, that the world lightens up a little as more people get vaccinated, the hospitals start to empty out, that we just all lighten up a little bit. Would that be a good thing? It would. Yep. So, you know, it's interesting. As we enter the new year, Everybody always has resolutions for the new year. Remember those is what are your new year's resolutions? What are your new year's re- Do you have a new year's resolution? Uh survive this last week. Survive okay. Because okay. we I'm, I've made it this far, you know. So so I'm going I'm guessing you probably got that in a bag, but yeah. you know people you know I'm, a really popular one is losing weight. Obviously, oh, I'm going to lose yeah. weight. I'm going to lose weight. That's my resolution. You know other people's resolutions are I'm going to work more, I'm going to work less. I'm going to spend more time with my wife or my husband. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And, and you know, statistically, I was reading online about 80% of resolutions, they not only don't happen, they're never mentioned again after the first time. Right. They just disappear. And then if you ask somebody six months later, by the way, whatever happened with that uh, resolution <laughs> that you had, they're going to, what are they going to do? They're going to give you an excuse. <laughs> I'm going to give you an excuse. And Buddy Hackett. Those of you who don't know who Buddy Hackett is, is a great comedian. And if you haven't Googled Buddy Hackett and listened to stuff, he's a dirty comedian from years ago and uh, was a very good friend of mine. I sat on the board of Buddy Hackett's charity. Buddy Hackett used to always say, I've been on a diet for two weeks and I lost 14 days. <laughs> <laughs> so he would turn it into a joke, right? right? And, and, and But, you know, it's interesting. The only reason why resolutions don't happen is because of excuses. Either I wasn't serious about the resolution in the first place, or I just came up with some freaking excuse that destroyed it. And in a, if ever, my book, and I didn't want to do a selfless book plug, that's not where I was going, but that's where I landed. My book, you know, Stop the BS, Cut the Excuses That Are Holding You Back, is so relevant when it comes to the premise of resolutions. And, you know, we talk about this, and, and I talk a lot about this in my educational programs and such. You know, what is an excuse, Corey? I mean, if you said to me, John, I'm going to wash my jeans tonight. And tomorrow morning you wake up and you didn't wash your jeans. And I say, oh, did you wash your jeans? You're going to say, nah, you know, I got tired. Or nah, you know, I ran out of time. You're always going to give me some excuse. Now, that excuse makes you feel better about not washing your jeans. Right, yeah. Not that your jeans need to be washed. I don't know why I picked that up. But, <laughs> no, no, but yeah. you see my point. Exactly. So yeah. now you're cool with not washing your jeans. Right. Doesn't bother you anymore because mm-hmm. you were tired. Or because of this, or because so the excuse justifies you failing yourself. It's the way we make ourselves feel warm and fuzzy about our own failures. The excuse, excuses paralyze us, man. They stop us from moving forward. They stop us from improving ourselves. And almost every excuse in the world is bullshit. And that's why I wrote the book that I wrote. And, and it became a New York Times bestseller. And I can't tell you how many thousands of emails we've got from people who've said this book has really changed their lives. But the premise of getting excuses out of your life means that your resolutions will actually mean something. What you say will mean something. So 
This year, whatever resolution you have, I want to see it come true for you. But, you know, I've always said, Corey, that there's no excuses, right? If there's a recession, you can make money. You know, there's somebody making money during a recession. During a snowstorm, somebody's making money, right? During a rainstorm, somebody's making money. On a sunny day, somebody's making money. You know, people sell the strangest things, make the livings in the strangest ways. So I have always said that there's no excuse for a business to fail that, that, that's valid. Because we've seen businesses in bad locations do well. We've seen them with shitty buildings do well. I mean, we've, so I've seen businesses succeed in the most adverse of situations because the owners were amazing and dynamic and, and, and success. So when you think about it, COVID is the first fickering excuse I've seen in my lifetime, really, that is valid. Wow. Because valid shut you to fuck down. <laughs> yeah. Right? Valid. So this is a valid excuse. And how do you get past a valid excuse? You change it from an excuse to a circumstance, and then you deal with it. Make sense? Yeah. So COVID isn't an excuse to me. It's a circumstance. I got to deal with it. I got to live my life during it, through it, get out the other side of it. So if you start thinking of these things as circumstances rather than excuses, we get through them better, don't we? Right? Because you've dealt with a lot of circumstances in your life, Corey. I mean, shoot, this year, moving in, moving out, girlfriend, blah, 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 blah. We all have these things to change in our lives. Absolutely, yeah. So if we understand it's a circumstance, we move forward, then it's not an excuse anymore. So COVID isn't an excuse anymore. It's a circumstance. And we have to figure out ways to come out the other side of it. Post-vaccine, it starts to get a lot easier for us. The next 60 days, it's not going to be so easy. But remember, there is an opportunity to take this circumstance and come out the other side of it with some benefit to yourself. So I wanted to have two great interview segments for this, our final episode, with two of my favorite people in the world. And Tiffany Deary, you've all seen on Bar Rescue. And I don't know, people always say, you know, you must love Tiffany. I said, and I say, why do you say that? Because your mannerisms together on TV. I guess, you know, we'll put each other on our arms and stuff. I love Tiffany Deary. You know, I think she's an, an amazing woman. I think she's an amazing chef. I think she's an amazing business person. I think that she's such a pleasure to be around all the time that I look up to her and to who she is and what she is. So when the pandemic started, you know, it's almost what I was saying a minute ago, Corey. Every restaurant was failing. Tiffany wasn't. She revamped her menu, put family meal packages together for $49, $59 with vegetables and starch and meats and desserts and blah, blah, and changed her whole business model in like hours and started selling out two, 300 meals a day, two, 300 meals a day. People had to order them two, three days in advance to get one because she'd sell out every day. Right. And she took COVID from an excuse to a circumstance. And then she marketed in that circumstance and came out a real winner. So think about the self-confidence, the skills, the creativity, the management ability, the marketing ability, all the things that have to come together to make Tiffany's plan work. And that's why I love her so much because she has the ability to pull and connect all these dots and make it so special. So I wanted to have a little interview with Tiffany on what she did to revolutionize the food service industry and her own operation. I also wanted to bring back a couple minutes with Dr. Phil. And as I've mentioned before, Dr. Phil, those of you who know me well know that I do Dr. Phil's show sometimes. And 
we're very good friends and I think the world of him. But, you know, Phil talked a lot about the higher risk and some of the issues that we need to deal with. In the next 60 days, this is going to get ugly, folks, uglier than we've ever seen. So a couple of words of wisdom from somebody who really has some knowledge to share with us I thought would be helpful too. So, you know what I find about Phil? And I don't know if I'm going to get in story in trouble for telling the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. In the early days when I first met Phil years and years ago, I won't say names, one of his best friends is a, is a well-known comedian. Best friends. And this well-known comedian is a big drinker, big smoker, might miss a show every once in a while. He might stumble out on stage every once in a while. He's the exact opposite of Dr. Phil in every way. <laughs> right? Phil is not a drinker. He's sober. He's straight. He always has his act together. He's never late for anything. Right? He's organized. He's prepared. The exact opposite in every way. But they're best friends. And I said to Phil in the early days of our relationship, I said, boy, that's surprising to me that, you know, that he would be your best friend. Not that he's a bad guy. Just, you know, that you, your lifestyles are so different. And Phil looked at me and said, you don't have to love everything about somebody to love them. And at that moment in time, I realized what a cool guy Phil was wow. and how amazing that perspective is to find, in essence, that good, that lovableness, if you will, in, in everybody. Mm -hmm. And at that moment in time, it was early in my relationship with him, at that moment in time, boy, my respect, admiration, and love of him grew enormously when he said that to me, and I'll never forget it. And it's a great way to live your life is to just look at everybody that way. So uh, uh, when I come back, we'll be with Dr. Phil. Don't shut down this podcast. John Taffer will be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Goldman Sachs. What do Goldman Sachs experts and leading thinkers have to say about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy? Stay informed with the latest insights from Goldman Sachs on the economic and market implications of COVID-19. Available on our podcasts at gs.com COVID-19 or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Loneliness in and of itself is a very stressful situation. And there have been a number of studies that have been done about the effects of loneliness. And uh, when, when people are lonely, and by lonely, I'm talking about a lack of encouragement from family or friends, being by yourself, uh, where you're in an apartment, you're four walls, you just don't have the normal human contact that you're used to. <clears throat> there was a study done in 2016 at Newcastle University, and they found by following people across time that there was a 30% increase in the risk of stroke and coronary heart disease among people that were lonely. I mean, think about that, a 30% increase in the risk of stroke and coronary heart disease. It shows how a, social we are as a species exactly. and how important that is. We are social animals. Uh, Florida State University College of Medicine did a study, 40% increase in a person's risk of dementia that was published in the Journal of Gerontology. For people that are at risk, they're in that age bracket, a 40% increase in risk of dementia. Uh, functional limitations go down. and 
what happens, John, and I don't want to get too technical here, but leukocytes of lonely participants and leukocytes are the white blood cells that play a real key role in the immune system. Uh, these go down because our body thinks when we're alone, we don't need an immune system to fight off viruses or any type of attacks. So our immune system goes quiet. And so we're much more susceptible to contracting some type of virus like the coronavirus. So just being lonely, feeling lonely makes us more susceptible to that which we are actually locked away from right now. So I'm so, blessed. You and I are blessed. We have <clears throat> you have Rob and I have Nicole with me. What about that person alone in a 30th floor in an apartment in New York? So they really are challenged by this. Well, they are challenged by it. And then let's add to that. Let's add to that the fear of catching this coronavirus and contracting COVID-19. So you've got that pressure. Now you've lost your job. There's economic collapse all around you. You have the unknown. Are you going to get through this okay? Is the world going to be the same? So you have all of that stress and pressure. So now that's when the sympathetic nervous system kicks in. And when that happens, we've now got studies that show us that once you're in that state of adrenergic arousal, where you stay that aroused all the time, people are 32% more likely to die. And, and let me tell you what will change that. Even looking at the picture of a loved one can make people in pain feel that pain less intensely. Pro-social behavior, like volunteering, helping a neighbor, curbs all the physical symptoms of stress. So if we, we are social animals, so if we start reaching out to others and giving away that which we need the most, it starts to heal us from the inside out. So there are things we can do. So when people say things like, I'm calling five friends a day, you know, I'm FaceTiming with my grandchildren every day, these are exactly the kind of exercises that in essence would, would solve this. Exactly. If you feel lonely and you, th you think, well, I, I wish I had somebody to talk to, then be somebody for your neighbor to talk to. You know, you can go down to the corner, knock on the door, of maybe an elderly person lives on the corner, knock on the door and step back to maintain social yep. distancing and say, you don't know me, but I live a few doors down and I just know that you live here alone. And I just wanted to come say hi and see if you need anything. I'm going to the store. Can I pick something up for you? I'm a stranger. So you probably don't want to give me your phone number, but here's mine. If you would like to call and talk, I, I would love to visit. I don't know if you have FaceTime, but here's my FaceTime. If you would like to talk, I would love to listen. Just visit. Can And maybe you're out mowing your yard and you look down there and there's this little long, roll your mower down there and mow their yard. I mean, just little things like that can make a huge difference in the way you feel and the way they feel. That's really powerful, Phil. And, and, and it's, it's a great inspiration for somebody just to go down the street or call that neighbor down the street and interact in that way. I'm going to do that tomorrow myself. I have somebody in mind that I can do that with. So you know, when I was in graduate school, Robin and I lived in a little cracker box house in Denton, Texas. And we had a neighbor um, that was a grave digger, actually. That's what he did for a living. And I was studying all the time. And 
I, I would look outside and he would be mowing his yard and he'd get to the driveway and he'd just keep going across the driveway and mow our yard. And I come out and say, what are you doing? And he said, I know you're studying. Just keep going. Just keep doing what you're doing. And the guy mowed our yard for like a year. I felt terrible, but he just wanted to do it. And you know, he's, it, it's been 40 years. He's a friend today. Wow. That's a great story. And those are the people that touch us and we never forget those people. So do you watch the news at night before you go to sleep? Do you have any rules about what you see and, and how you expose yourself to different information during the day? You know, I really do. And I recommend that people follow a, a pattern of this. You know, I, John, nobody, you never turn the news on and they say today at third and main, nothing happened <laughs> that they don't put that on the news. So, you know, you're going to get a biased report. They're going to tell you something that, is a figure against the background of the humdrum day. They're going to tell you how many died. How many times have you turned on the news and they said, here's how many people have recovered from this virus. That just doesn't happen. Uh, the truth is that there have been several hundred thousand reported cases of recovery worldwide, but they don't report that. And so and I'm not saying that they're being inaccurate. They're just being selective in what they report. So I, I suggest that people choose the least spun, the least political resource they can find, source they can find, and check in in the morning, see what's happening, maybe for 15, 20 minutes, and then check again, maybe around 5.30 or 6. And the rest of the day, you need to get on with the other parts of your life. Maybe you're homeschooling your children. Maybe you're working from home. Maybe you're reorganizing your closets. But get on with the rest of your life. Don't obsess with this hour after hour after hour. You know, I found in the beginning I was obsessed with it, and I watched the news all day long. Now I've cut it back. I update myself in the morning, Phil, and then I try to go about my day and not watch it at night. That seems to work uh, much better for me. Let you me have... say something about kids, if I can, while we're on this media thing, John. I was just going there. <laughs> Great. I, you know, I learned a lesson, and I, I should have known this, but I didn't. Uh, but when 9-11 happened, um, I was doing the Oprah show at the time, and they still had all the planes grounded and Oprah called and said, I'm going to figure a way to get you from Dallas to Chicago because we're going to do a show with you, me and the first lady, Laura Bush, because I think we need to speak to the nation. And I said, okay, we did. And we had a bunch of children there from Chicago. These were grade school children, lower school. And as we sat there talking to them and interviewing them, those children told us, that they thought all of the buildings in the United States had been knocked down. And I said, wait a minute. I, I was hearing this as they were telling us. And I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? And they kept saying, well, you know, they've knocked all the buildings down. And I said, no, no, wait a minute. They've knocked two buildings down. What do you mean? And they all thought all the buildings had been knocked down because every channel they turned on, buildings were being knocked down. There were different camera angles on different channels, different viewpoints, they all thought all the buildings had been knocked down in the entire country, and they were terribly upset. And this is because parents weren't watching the news with them. They weren't interpreting it for them, and they were left to their own devices. So 
I can only imagine what children are thinking right now when they're hearing pandemic, quarter a million will die worldwide, body bags in the hallway, digging mass graves. What must children think if their parents aren't watching the media with them and limiting what they see and hear? Wow, that's really powerful. I know you have some beautiful grandchildren. What are you doing? Are you FaceTiming with them? How are you keeping in touch with family? What is your route? And do you do it every day? And how do you communicate with your grandchildren? Well, we, we talk to them a lot, and we FaceTime with them. Robin is the quintessential grandma, and we FaceTime with them sometimes five or six times a day. And I'll hear the FaceTime signal go off, and the next thing I hear is just this uncontrollable laughter they put on funny mask and and facetime over here and try to scare robin and it's just i i think we may actually be communicating with them more now (laughs) but it's just by facetime instead of in person because usually they come over and spend the night on weekends and stuff like that but robin uh, avery we have avery who's 10 and london's who is eight and a half and they were asking Robin, what can we do? What's, what games can we play? And she came up with a great idea. She said, okay, I'm going to give you an idea. I think you should get, she said, I think you should get your parents to redo their wedding and you should throw the wedding this time. You weren't there for the first one. And <laughs> so she said, you should have a virtual wedding and set up chairs and in every chair you should put something that represents the people who aren't there and you should pick what they wear and bake the cake yourself and do the decorations yourself and have a whole wedding and be the photographer and they worked on it for a week and this last saturday they had a wedding out in the backyard and jay and erica played along and walked the aisle and they worked on this for a week and i'll send you the copy of the video john it is absolutely unbelievable it was just beautiful well you know i spoke to jay the other day jay of course is is phil's son and he was telling me how he so treasures the time he's spending with the kids now because he's not traveling and, and it's been a special gift so I wonder how many of us can, can learn from that, Phil, because, you know, I don't have any children here, but what a wonderful concept of having them put together a wedding or a puppet show or something that takes three or four days to do. So it's a long term. It gives somebody something to look forward to. And, and what a great time for them to spend together doing that. So they've had a ball. And I, I know that probably it gets a little chaotic at times, but uh, they've sure had fun doing it. And we've had fun hearing from them. So it's... Uh, and I, I said the other day, I was a little embarrassed, but Robin and I are such homebodies. We hadn't really noticed the shelter at home rule yet because we don't really <laughs> go anywhere. <laughs> so do you miss going out to dinner and restaurants? And Because and, I know you do that on occasion, certainly. We, we like to go. We have some favorite places we go. And we don't go out all that much, but when we go, we go big. We like to go to New York or Vegas or somewhere. Yep. And we miss that. And um I, I, I really do, but I, I do enjoy being at home. And frankly, since we got shut down, I've been busier than I was when we had a routine and shooting. Um, I've been doing eight, 10 interviews a day plus shows and stuff. And so I, I've been, I've been busy and it doesn't seem like we're shut down. I, 
there are people that can't work from home. They, they have jobs that maybe they work in a factory or they work in some kind of retail situation where they, they can't work at home. And that's got to be so frustrating for people that can't actually do their job from home. And so they are on hold. And I know that's terrible for them. Fortunately, I can bring a camera in here and do this from home. So I'm fortunate in that regard. And I, I really feel for those that can't do that. They have to be at a location to do their job. Yeah, me too. You know, we, we, we do videos for people who send us notes. Can you do me a video for a birthday and things like that? And, and uh, we set up a little studio here. Same thing with me, Phil. We've been doing interviews since five in the morning. But at least we're still working. We're still communicating. We have a purpose every day. I know that yeah. I have a schedule tomorrow to look forward to. I'm not idle. It, it, would, it would be unbearable to me to think that I would be incapable to do anything related to my job. From home. Yeah, I, I walked in here today, and the background behind me was different. It had Robin's logo for, from her podcast, I've Got a Secret, up behind me. And she was interviewing uh, Camilla McConaughey, Matthew's wife from Austin, where it was 90-plus degrees. And she's buzzing along doing what she does. Then I'm in here doing something different. So we're just kind of rotating in and out and busy as we can be. So we're very blessed in that regard. Phil, what would you say is, is the, uh, um, and I know this is, this is a tough question. What is the single point of advice that you would give someone? And I know people say, hang in there. It's going to be less. It's going to be longer. Prepare yourself in one sentence or two sentences. What would be the, the ultimate message that we each need to embrace to get through this? We're not helpless. What really makes people stressed is when they feel like there's something bad looming or happening and there's nothing they can do about it. And so the one sentence I would say is recognize you are not helpless. Um, Dr. Fry in England did a study recently in 2018 where they were studying pandemics and honestly the number of people infected went from 42 million to 21 million just by having people wash their hands five to ten times a day cut it absolutely in half we're not helpless by social distancing by doing this isolation by washing our hands, by cleaning our surfaces, by doing the things that are necessary, we're not helpless. We can turn this around. So don't think you're helpless just waiting for lightning to strike. You are the master of your destiny. You can make this happen. You know, I've been working these past few weeks as many people are focused on the pandemic. I've been focused on what is the reset of America? How do restaurants reopen? How do bars, <clears throat> casinos, all of this? And I've been focused on what I call LBE, which is location-based entertainment, movie theaters, bowling centers, Broadway, all those types of venues. And when I try to look forward and say, okay, how do we reopen? I'm here in Las Vegas, Phil, the Strip, and I've, I've been with you here in Las Vegas. These casinos don't even have locks on the doors. They never contemplated locking them up or closing them before. Right. So everything is boarded <clears throat> up. These are the largest hotels in the world. And everything is boarded up. The driveways are closed off. Nobody can get in there. And now we have to think about how do we reopen? And we look at a city like Las Vegas that lives on tourism or a local restaurant anywhere in the country. And I think to myself, and, and I'd love for you to, to disagree with me, but I'd, here's what I think. I think that social distancing becomes more of a sociological thing, and I think it doesn't go away real quickly. 
So I'm guessing that people are not going to sit shoulder to shoulder with strangers for a while. Is that a pretty fair assessment? I think it is. And I was going to ask you, let's say, let's, let's fast forward to, I don't know, let's pick a date, May 31st. Let's, it's not going to happen this way, but let's just hypothetically, Mm -hmm. let's say May 31st, there's a national cancellation of shelter at home. Gates are open. They say, go back to work go back to your lives. This is migrated to the Southern hemisphere, which is now in winter. And this is not considered to be at a pandemic level here. So we can get back to life before Corona. So go back to it. Do you, John, think people are going to really go back full speed to their lives? Or do you predict that they will kind of tiptoe and put their toe in the water and ease back into this with a little nervousness and paranoia? Or do you think they'll run headlong back into their lives? You know, I think it's somewhat of the demographic answer. I think the young people might be quicker to run back into it, whereas people over over 45 might not. Here's what we've been looking at, Phil. We think that restaurants are going to have to provide greater spacing, just like supermarkets now have spacing set up. They're making aisles one way. So you don't bump into somebody in an aisle. These are little mm-hmm. operational shifts that are happening in business. <clears throat> so I think that restaurants are going to have to remove a few tables. I can't imagine a movie theater filling an entire row of strangers. I'm guessing they're going to have to create some type of a spacing as we ease into it, Phil. And I guess we'll add a table in a month or two and add another table. <clears throat> but here's what worries me. When I look at all of these business venues, whether it's nightclubs, restaurants, bars, movie theaters, whatever, and I say, okay, there is likely going to be a capacity change going forward within the four walls of these businesses. So if I had 100 seats, let's say now I have 70 seats or 60 seats. When I look at different floor plans, Phil, I see the physical reduction to be sometimes up to 60% to create the aisle space in the spreading. So I now have 60... How does that work in a business plan? How do, well, they, how do they survive with that? That's what worries me, Phil. So if you take a look at a 100-seat restaurant, and let's say they would do 100 covers during lunch... Now they only have 70 seats. They can't do 100 covers in an hour anymore. So they have to now do an early bird lunch special, a late bird lunch special. They have to create that same amount of business over a longer period of time if they can. But that impacts labor costs, Phil. That changes the whole model. You know, and then I saw something on social media the other day that, that, that I'm curious to hear your comment on. It was a photograph of a cook in a restaurant in a commercial kitchen, and he's laying a noodle into a lasagna pan. And the post is, our famous lasagna will be available for pickup at five o'clock today. But the guy was wearing street clothes. He wasn't wearing a hat. He wasn't wearing Mm -hmm. a mask. All he had on was gloves. I think that has to change. I think that we're gonna see kitchens that look a little more like operating rooms, Phil. I think we're not gonna see hats from home. We're gonna see hats issued in the kitchen every shift. I think we're gonna be chef coats and things like that issued every shift so street clothes don't come in and out of the kitchen. I think these kind of operational changes are important. And when I look at the difference in, in capacity, it scares the hell out of me, Phil. And then I look at delivery services, and that's not the answer. I can't do 100 deliveries in an hour. I can, I can serve 100 people in a restaurant. So that terrifies me, this premise of spread. The other thing that, that is really uh, uh, um, very concerning to me when we look forward in the industry is you know the impact on labor, of course. So I can't have servers deliver food anymore, Phil, because they touched money. 
They touched bust products. They're, they're, I can't have them wash their hands a hundred times. So now I need, I believe, designated food runners that are dressed in white and have white gloves and all they do is touch food. So now we have to operate differently. But what I was really thinking about, Phil, and I'd love your feeling on this, I think that restaurants and bars and these type of venues now can't sell what they do. Going forward, they have to sell how they do it. And I think that's a big shift in business. I think, Phil, if you and I went out for a hamburger tomorrow, I don't think we'd go out to the place that necessarily had the best burger. I think we'd go out to the place that we trusted the most. And that changes well, the whole business right. dynamic, doesn't it? I, I think you're right. And I've always been one of those guys that when I get on an airplane, get on an airliner, I look left before I turn right. I want to see the pilot. I want to look this man or woman in the eyes and see what kind of night they had before we take off. People get on and just blindly trust. I've never been that guy. I seriously want to look the pilot over before I get on the airplane uh, because being a pilot, I know you can have a bad day. And I, I really, it's, I don't blind trust people. And I don't, I think you're exactly right. I think people are not going to, blindly trust food preparers and i don't think they're going to blindly trust doctor's offices dentist offices i think they're going to look for those that go the extra mile to protect them and in in the same breath i i have to say this i think the reaction to this virus the fear the anxiety the paralysis that it has caused is a huge overreaction to the actual threat. Now, having said that, I totally support following all of the guidelines of the CDC. We have been in isolation. We are observing the shelter at home rules. We respect social isolation. I, I go along with every bit of it, but the fear is disproportionate to the actual threat. 85% of the people that contract this virus are going to have no symptoms or mild or moderate symptoms. 15% of the people are going to perhaps rehire, require hospitalization and a small percent, we don't know what that percent is, are tragically going to lose their lives. And those are going to mostly be people that had an underlying condition COPD, asthma, something that probably is most likely respiratory because this is a respiratory virus. So the fact of the matter is you've got people that are absolutely paralyzed when the, they have an 85 chance, 85% chance of having no symptoms or mild or moderate symptoms. And it appears right now that about 25% of all people that get this have no symptoms at all, which makes this spread so fast because you can't spot the carriers. And you don't know you're sick yourself. That's right. Well, wisdoms from Phil. Always wisdoms from Phil. Well, I talked earlier about Tiffany Deary, so there's not much more I could say about her. As, as, uh, everybody knows how much I admire her. And, and this is a fascinating business story of what she accomplished. Now, remember... This conversation, I think, Corey, was April or May. 
It was, yeah. So it didn't take her six months to figure this out. Mm-hmm. You know, and she was doing this in days from when the pandemic started. Literally, yeah. So there was no paralyzing of COVID with Tiffany. There were no excuses with Tiffany. She just moved forward and changed her life and her business plan. It's a great, great story. So give a listen to my buddy, Tiffany Deary. I have watched what you've done since this pandemic has started. And I don't want you to blush, but you're one of the heroes of our industry. And I want to talk about this. First of all, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, every day is a different, like, before I thought they were all different, but today is a good day. Yeah. So, so when this pandemic started, you not only stepped up for our frontliners, I know that, and worked to feed people. I want to talk as a restaurateur for a moment, because you're actually sustaining your business now, aren't you? It's interesting. You reinvented your business. You completely reinvented your business. And and I've looked online. You had to. But if you weren't pivoting, adjusting, reinventing your business, you were going to be left behind. And I just I couldn't look at all of the people who I employ who would not be able to get unemployment, who didn't know what to do, who look up to me. And I felt like I needed to do something. I had to step up. I had to make some decisions. Well, I'm glad you did. You know, what scares me, Tiff, at this time is so many restaurants have taken their government money and are focused on sustaining themselves, but they have no plan to move forward. And that scares the heck out of me. So like you, these past weeks, I've been thinking about how do we go forward, not how do we sustain ourselves during this. And you've done that. And I see online, you promote the meal that you're selling the day before, right? Or t- So I can sign up. There's only so many. Correct. I pre-order. We go ahead and get, um, you know, the payment done. So we know exactly what we're cooking for. We understand that going into it, we're not buying extra. Um, so we're, we, I mean, we really have it down now, I feel like, to a science. Because every week, I guess know that on Fridays, we're going to have a crazy family meal. It's not going to cost you an arm and a leg to do. And that's not only say we're going to make money out of this, but you have to do it in the right way. Because money is tight for a lot of people right yeah. now. Your business isn't the only one that's tight, you know? So you have to give and take. I reduce the prices for the family meal so that we can serve more. I go out and I find, hey, what vegetables have this week? 
you know, we want whatever you're cooking, we're going to do it. Well, that's what was fun for me. So I st even though I'm in Las Vegas and you're in Dallas, unfortunately, I'm out of your delivery area or your pickup area. But, <laughs> but, but I've been looking and it's been fun because, you know, everybody in Dallas knows your food. Right, they know your food. So, what is Chef Tiffany making today? What does she make? So, there's a lot of fun in this. Also, you're yeah. selling people meals that they might not have ordered themselves, and that's fun, right? You're, yeah. You're yeah, and they're trusting. They're trusting me now. Yeah. So, I think. I mean, to be a chef and to have someone say, "Whatever you're cooking on Friday, we're we're buying." You know what I mean? That's a pretty fantastic way to be. But think of how fun it is for them have a chef they trust, a, a restaurant whose sanitation practices they can completely trust, and get a meal that they would have never have ordered for themselves had it not been uh, you creating that for them. So it's a win-win for everyone. And I so wanted to have you on because I wanted restaurant operators to hear what you're doing, Tiff, because a lot of them are frozen in, in all these other markets, and we can be doing these things. You proved it. So... I think right now, looking forward, and look, you and I have talked and spent a lot of time together over the years, and by the way, my love to your parents, uh, um, I wanted to, to talk about what happens in the future. And you know, years ago, if I chose a restaurant because of their hamburger, I would go to the restaurant that has my favorite hamburger. Today, if the restaurant that has my favorite hamburger, if I don't trust it operationally, cleanliness and practices, I'm going to go eat my second favorite hamburger because I trust that restaurant more. That's a big change in our business, Tiff. I mean, yeah. it, it drops trust to the top of the list. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to make sure that your business, your restaurant is at top notch when it comes to safety and sanitation. At this moment, that has to be our top priority to make sure that we are keeping everything clean and sanitized for our guests. If you cannot properly do that, you do not need to be open. I, I completely agree. So our most important priority with our customers right now is for them to trust us. Trust our practices, trust everything that we're doing to make certain that whatever they eat in our restaurant, they can trust us. That's a, a change. And, you know, I was on social media the other day, and it was a photograph of a cook making lasagna in a pan. And he was laying a noodle in a pan, and, and it said, our famous lasagna is ready for pickup at 5 o'clock. But he was wearing street clothes, and he wasn't wearing a hat. And he wasn't wearing a mask. And he was wearing clear disposable gloves. And I'm saying, that, that's not the messages we want to send now. Right. You're right. And you also have to be careful on many occasions with even the social media content. You know, a lot of times we film these things ahead of time. And then we release them. Well, if, there, if your product, if you don't have the proper look and gloves like you're saying, you're going to get roasted, and people are not going to want to eat from your restaurant. So you have to, right now, you have to pay attention to everything. What's happening in the restaurant, outside the restaurant, everything you're putting out, all your content, to every detail. Because folks can choose where they go. But what you want them to do is to choose you every time. Yeah, absolutely right. And today, trust is, so, is almost a, a more important than any single, it's a single one motivator that changes everything. You know what else is interesting, Tiff, and I was thinking about this, you know, restaurants going forward, the employees aren't going to tolerate uh, any less than that either. So, We're putting, right now, we are an essential worker. 
if you have a restaurant, you're an essential worker. It is not only your job to make sure that we are cooking for the community properly, clean and sanitized. It's also our responsibility to make sure that our employees are safe. So if an employee sees something that's not right happening in your restaurant, they're not going to stay. They don't want to put their, their family at risk. They don't want to do all of those things. So it's just as yeah, and, and it's self-policing because the employees all want to be safe. So it's wonderful. If we set up these procedures, our employees have every reason to respect them now. And that's what I think uh, is the, 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 what I'm looking forward to, Tiff, is I really believe when this ends, and you've proven it already, the great marketers will succeed when this ends. The great operators will succeed when this ends. And the great promoters will succeed when this ends. And you've actually done all three, the way you've marketed, the way you're promoting your meals, the way you've changed your operations, the way you're communicating. So you've changed the way you operate, the way you communicate, the way you motivate. So you've adapted to this. I wanted other restaurant operators to hear this message because it's so damn important. And here's what worries me, Tiff. All of these restaurants and all these other places, their refrigerators are empty. Their walk-ins are empty. So they need the money to buy an opening inventory to get going. So obviously, they're probably going to have a smaller inventory. They might do things like you, right? Narrow the menu, do specialized meals, whatever it might be. But they have spent all their money sustaining themselves during this period, not making money on, on curbside or delivery. Now when it comes time to open, I'm worried they're not going to have the resources to open. What do you you're think? 100%. That's what I think. So, you're 100%. I worry. I worry that... that People are taking money, and they're only looking at the right now. But we're not over this yet. No. You still have to sustain yourself for weeks to come before we have no clue when things will get back to normal. Or if normal, you know, what is normal? Maybe a new normal, you right. know? And you're right. They're going to run out of money. And unfortunately, you're also going to have that loan interest and that loan payment that you're going to have to pay back with empty dining rooms. What if we have to social social distance ourselves in dining rooms when we open back up, right? Like, the whole model is changing, and if you're not changing and adjusting right now and planning right now, you're already gone. I, I completely agree. You know, little things like this we were talking about, and I don't want to get too operational, but we were talking about the fact that servers really can't bring food to tables anymore. If they're bussing plates and they're touching money, then so now we need a designated food runner. And the customer sees all he's doing is bringing food from the kitchen. He's not touching money. He's not touching bust uh, uh, vessels, none of that kind of stuff. So now we have that change. Okay, so now we can protect the customer as we bring. But now if the server isn't bringing food to the kitchen or, or products from the bar, maybe they could have one more table. Maybe that could be a five-table station rather than a four. So these are the kind of operational changes. Also, I was thinking about, you know, the old diner? You worked at one when you were 16 years old. We had the cashier in front, right? And you paid. I think that might come back because that contains the money changing to one specific area. If we contain food running, we contain money collecting, and we contain serving, it starts to make sense to me, you know, the way we could operate in a model like that. Like you said, opening up a fine dining inventory, that's like opening a whole new restaurant. And you're not probably going to want to, you know, have some of the procedures that I would adjust to in a casual concept. So I think everyone just has to be smart. And maybe if that was the restaurant you had before, that may not be the restaurant that opens back up. Yeah, I agree. 
So when we've been looking at this, and I've been analyzing this for five weeks, looking at Broadway, concert venues, full-service restaurants, high, uh, you know, uh, uh, upscale restaurants, which tend to have more spacing in the first place as compared to a casual environment, which is a little tighter. We lose about 40 to 60% of our capacity on the inside with the spacing regulations or the standards that we're going to be presented with. Now, that's not going to be forever, but I'm guessing, you know, you look at a Georgia opening up Monday. I mean, they're opening their restaurants. They have to employ spacing like that, at least in the beginning, or people like you and I won't go there. I won't go there if they're going to put me three inches from a stranger. So when we look at that, I mean, now if you, if you did serve 100 lunches in an hour, you can't deliver 100 lunches in an hour. So your capacity is now down to 50 people. So we were talking about with cities, for example, if they could allow a little more outdoor seating in some restaurant environments, that could make a huge difference. You know, a small restaurant, if I can get eight more seats out in front, that could be the world of difference. Also, I think that we should start to see beer companies provide folding open podiums that you can put in front of the restaurant for curbside pickup. So it's organized with a little POS tablet on it so that we're really set up for curbside and we can do it in a smart kind of a way. I think that cities can start to put yellow lines where curbside pickup is going to be so cars won't be parked there so we can have access to it. So I think that if we did that, and one last thing, we have to talk to the government about doing an inventory credit when we reopen. I think that's critical. And Tiff, if our restaurants don't fill their refrigerators, our farmers don't grow, our manufacturers don't manufacture, and our distributors don't distribute, this is a big problem. So, so I'm hoping and I'm lobbying, and, I, and, and I'm guessing you'll have the same voice. There needs to be some dollars provided to these restaurants for an inventory credit to open, knowing that those inventory dollars go right down the system and supply the entire chain. And that's an easy verification to do. We can submit invoices for food, you know, to prove that we spent the dollars where we should, et cetera. But I think that's the next big step that government has to take to get these other people open. I agree. You're right. 100% accurate. Yeah. Like always. Ah, oh, stop it. So, you know, I wanted you to be on because I, I knew you'd motivate everyone, Tiff. Because, you know, you started, uh, uh, you know, I always love your story, and you and I are close, and you know I love you. But I love your story from flipping pancakes to traveling the world to learn to cook while you went to school, you know, to, to creating your own restaurants, to gaining so much respect in what was then a male-dominated industry. You guys have changed that the past few years. <laughs> but, but, you know, I've always respected you so much, and you're always so inspiring. What would you say to restaurant operators now who see this all as bleak? done something, and you might have done it for 20, 30 years, you might have done it too, um, let that go. You have to deal with it in the moment and where you're going. Take a deep breath, reassess where you're at, and get to work. You have to do something. Um, John, you said that we switched our programs, and we did these things. Um, that is important. You actually have to get to work. You no longer sit behind the desk and collect how you have been doing all of these years. Your model has to change. And you've had, during this pandemic, you've had some exciting moments. I've seen you post, we're sold out at dinners tomorrow. You know, so you found... Every, every, every dinner we're sold out. So, every dinner. 
So there is an answer. So I want everybody to know where they can find you on social media. But start by giving them the restaurant social media pages because I want other restaurant operators to watch what you're doing, Tiff. So where can they find the restaurants where you're doing these programs? admired success. Uh, many people don't know this about me, but my grandfather uh, got credit uh, for inventing direct mail Oh wow! in the 1940s and 50s yeah. and was an immigrant in the country and his father was blind and uh, lived in Brooklyn, New York. And my grandfather, when he was about 14 years old, got the idea that with a little printing press to print up flyers and stick them in the newspapers at his father's newspaper stand. And then he started doing two newspaper stands and then three newspaper stands and then four news then all over Brooklyn. And he created sort of the insert business. And then they started stuffing them in mailboxes in the apartment buildings in Brooklyn. And then they started mailing them. And he had a little direct mail business going. And then a huge advertising agency bought his company, hired him, and made him vice president of direct marketing. And he wound up doing direct marketing for companies that we all know so well like uh, Eastern Airlines, uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, and, and uh, uh, Mercedes-Benz and companies like that. And he did it without an education. And he did it during the Depression, Corey. And he did it during World War II. Wow. A and, uh, you know, I've always thought about him and what he did. When he was born, he was poor. When he died, he was very wealthy. He changed the entire trajectile of my family. I grew up as an affluent young man because of him. If it wasn't for him, I would have grown up in poverty. So one person without an education changes the dynamic of everything. Well, I often look at him for inspiration, and he's one of the people that inspires me day to day. And at times like this, as we go through these next 60 days, even though there's an end in sight, you don't taste it right now. Inspiration means everything. And I want to inspire you all. 60 to 90 days from now, this is going to be a very different country once we all start to get vaccinated, once our herd immunity comes into place, and we all have a lot to look forward to. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next month, but we have a lot to look forward to. Let's keep that in mind as we deal with the next 60 days. And everybody have a great, great new year. 21 is coming. Even more important, 20 is over. <laughs> and I'll talk to you all next year. Bye-bye. Subscribe to the John Tapper Podcast right now for more episodes every Thursday.